My name is Scott Roper, and Jesus saved my life. My life before I met Jesus, I was a drug addict, an alcoholic. I lived for myself. I had no faith in anything, uh, not even myself. I lived my life for myself. I uh, was a selfish individual. I uh, had basically abandoned my family with love and everything because I was more interested in my drugs over my wife and kids. I, when my drug addiction led me and my wife to divorce because I was selfish and didn't want to be married anymore. If I wasn't married, I could do drugs every day. It affected my kids in the way of their dad wasn't around. Their dad wasn't there when they needed him. Did a lot of damage. Well, my lowest point, I had quite a few low points. I was in and out of jail, in and out of rehabs. Uh, I got to the point where I didn't care when I went and to get drugs. I would, if there was a police officer parked down the road, I would start doing my drugs driving right by. I didn't care about living. I didn't care about going if I went to jail. Uh, I got to the point where I just didn't want to live no more. But I wasn't going to kill myself. If I was going to die, it was going to, I was going to die because of drugs. I got arrested. When I got arrested and went to court and that, they, uh, they sentenced me twice. First one, they, they rescinded the sentence. And, and then the second sentence is they sentenced me to three months in the federal halfway house in, in Fort Worth. I had to do two six-month classes, three years probation. And while I was in there, I was completely broken, had nowhere to go. I had been in these programs before, and I left God out of it because I didn't think God would save me because I felt he sh if there was a God that I wouldn't have had this problem. One day I was sitting in my uh, in a meeting there and it was like 20 days in and I turned to a, an acquaintance of mine that was in there and I looked at him and I, and I said uh, you know I can't remember the last time I thought about using drugs or drinking because that was a daily occurrence I mean it was if I went to bed that night and woke up that morning that's what I thought about where I could get my next fix and, and get through the day that was the moment that something was different that something changed I felt a I felt a release like something had just been removed from my shoulders. I mean, that was the day I started to believe in God and that because I couldn't do it on my own. I wouldn't let God before. And, you know, I 
so I started believing and I started paying attention. I had gotten with a man that was coming in and doing the meetings. His name was Bill Simmons. And uh, he ended up being my sponsor and bringing me to church. And after I was at church for a while, I got baptized. I don't think if I came to church or had somebody telling me about God and that, that I would have ever have listened. But if you've ever had this disease on your shoulders and something just changes and you don't have that desire to use drugs or drink again, and I have been sober ever since, going on 14 years, March 17th. And uh, that I had to have something dramatic happen to me. So, and that was very dramatic to me, the way I lived my life and everything. That boom, all of a sudden, this weight was gone. I didn't have to do this no more. What an incredible reality and an incredible story. Um, this, I'm, I'm full today, full for numerous reasons. One, I got to be a part of baptizing a friend and uh, be a part of the journey of, of Scott as he's walked through life and, and front row seat to the work that God has done. And so when we talked about this, this sermon series and considered the conversation about testify, I was walking and collaborating with the staff about what we could name it and leave it to me. I had a really long title for this sermon series, and they're like, let's boil it down a little bit. What I wanted to call it is, is the greatest sermons never preached, and they won, and it's called Testify, which is good. It's, it's, it's accurate, and it's right, and it's solid, but, but ultimately, that's the reality of what we're, we're moving into is, is that sense that the stories that God is writing, our encounters with Him, are not just meaningful for ourselves, but they testify, they proclaim, they communicate about the reality of who Christ really is. And the interesting part of looking at your story and other people's stories is that they're encountering Jesus from just a vast amount of different trajectories. The story of drugs and alcohol addiction, the stories of struggles with life, the desires of just mere curiosity. People come to Christ in numerous ways with numerous different questions and a variety of different hang-ups, and, and some maybe just out of mere curiosity, others out of sheer brokenness. But the, the vastness of who Christ is is that he meets every single one of us in those moments. It's not how we come, but that we come. And so this morning is going to kick off our series of, of looking at different individuals within the context of scriptures who have met Christ from various different trajectories and various different backgrounds. And, and yet in the moment, God continues, Christ continues to meet them in unique and various ways 
but all the same time drawing them to the very same conclusion. Life without Christ is not really life. There's an emptiness and a vacancy, sometimes an issue of self-reliance or just hope or pride or arrogance, whatever it is. There's numerous different facets that God continues to push against to pare down the reality that we've been designed for relationship. That relationship is impossible to experience unless we understand the reality of who Christ is and the reality of our own need. This morning, we're going to look at John chapter 3 starting off, and we're going to expose you a bit to a a man named Nicodemus. His name in Greek actually means victory of people or victory over people. This guy was a religious zealot in a sense. He was a Pharisee, so I would say a, a teacher of the law. If there was anyone that you would look at and say, this dude has it together, it would be Nicodemus. He was faithful in following the religious practices of the Jews. He was not just following them, but he was teaching them. He was an individual that deeply, deeply cared about the things of God. He had an insatiable hunger for the things of God. And in the process of all of those things, strong religious knowledge, incredible vast amounts of experience with the law and God and all that God had communicated to his people, and he had been teaching it for years to other followers, and yet still missed it. My boy Nick didn't quite figure it out. Had moments of of, uh, understanding and illumination, moments of of sheer wisdom, but yet in the process of those things, he looked on Jesus. He'd been sort of following his ministry through the course of his story, and in the midst of following his ministry, he saw Jesus do things that no one else could do. Imagine that that might be true for many of us. We've seen things. God has done things that are inexplicable and only attributed to God. And yet, we still wonder if we should trust him. That's Nick this morning. That's Nicodemus. That's his story. As he encounters Christ, he has seen all of these miraculous things And he's begun to make some very rational, very logical, very understandable conclusions. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 3. And it's going to be starting in verse 1. And I'll go through verse 15 as we kind of unfold Nick's story a little bit. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees.
John 3.16, right? Every football game, some Christian in the back has John 3.16 up, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. But all of this comes before on the heels of Nicodemus's curiosity and question. He's uncertain about who Jesus is and really what he's about. There's a level of knowledge and expectation that I can just learn the Christian ways and be a Christian. I can say Christian things and be a Christian. I can follow Christian rules and be a Christian. Jesus pushes against this all the time. No, because the work of the the powerful work of Christ in the midst of our lives is not about some level of mental ascent or some understanding of doing the right things. It's about changing our status and our hearts. There's a level of work that's going on. And, and you would say, well, that doesn't say that in the story. How do you know? Well, I would say that first and foremost, we all have questions and only Jesus is the answer. Now, I didn't say that Jesus has the answer. So that Jesus is the answer. There's a level of things that bring us to some level of curiosity or brokenness or struggle where we begin to wonder if Jesus is who he really said he was. Great question. But in the process, Jesus and Nicodemus's life is exposing and unearthing things in his heart. And how do we know that to be true? Well, Jesus already told us that in John chapter 2. Verses 24 and 25, look what he says. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man because what does he know about all people? For he himself knew what was in man. So we just extend that a bit further to the reality of where you and I sit today. There's a sense in which whatever brings us to Jesus Whatever challenges we face, whatever curiosity or uncertainty or confusion begins to fix or anchor itself in our hearts and minds, come to this reality that Jesus knows exactly what that is. There are things that we're hanging on to that are holding us away from knowing fully who Jesus is. And it's those specific things that Jesus pushes against in Nicodemus' life. And he begins to address those things in stark and real ways, challenging the very thought that you can be a Christian by mental assent, that somehow knowledge is enough that you know about God but don't know him personally. Jesus pushes against Nicodemus' thought from the very beginning and challenges him with this notion that there must be new birth. That something, even though you live and draw breath, must take place inside for us to experience eternal life. What is that? What must take place inside? Ultimately, it's a level of confidence. Trust in the fact that what Jesus is doing or has done has had the impact that Jesus promised it would have, and that in order to be in a right relationship with God, faith is the only material in the context of that relationship. It's crucial to be in those places of understanding where and what we have faith in. Because all of us have faith in something. The issue is, is it in Christ himself? And I'd love if we just picked up and left ourselves and. Nicodemus' story right there. 
We could go on for hours just wrestling through the back and forth between Jesus and Nicodemus and trying to understand, but there's this patient endurance of Jesus continuing to push against his life, move him to places. And I ask you the question, did it work? Well, let's look. That's the great part about the story of Nicodemus is this is not all that the Gospel of John gives us. We get other snapshots of his story along the way that give us indications of some level of work that God is doing. So in this moment, no idea where Nicodemus stands in his understanding of Christ. He's been challenged. No idea if it led to faith. No idea what he's doing. Maybe going back with his Pharisee homies and just talking about all of these things that he understood with Jesus and all of the interchanges. We don't know what happened. But in John chapter 7, we get an indication that there are some challenges that are beginning to mount with his closest group of friends, his Pharisees, his buddies, those who have been teachers of the law. In the process of those things, you get this sense that there was a dispute, it tells us in John, that there was a dispute among the religious leaders. And they were beginning to grow frustrated and uncertain about the things that are going on. And so here's what happens. It calls in verse 40 a division among the people. Verse 45, it says the officers then came and the chief priests and the Pharisees. So all of the head honchos are there, the the CEOs and the CFOs of the religious elite, they're all there to decide and determine what's going to happen. Look what it says in verse 50. Nicodemus, before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophets arrive from Galilee. <laughs> so now you get this unique scenario where there's some division in the ranks, some dispute, some challenge. And the Pharisees are about done with Jesus. They're tired of his antics. They're frustrated by all the things that he's doing. They're, they're, he's displacing their authority and diminishing their voice. And he's continuing to grow a following And so now there's this sort of chaos surrounding the ministry of Christ. And the religious elite step in. And here's what they say. We're from the church. We'll fix it. (laughs) You know, we're we're the ones that will will deal with this situation. And so what do they do? They're ready to deal with Jesus without even giving him a hearing. In that moment, Nicodemus is compelled to step up. Not willing to just dismiss Jesus out of pocket. I think that's the challenge for many of us. Is that many of us dismiss Jesus before even giving him a hearing. I think there's some similarities to what the, the Pharisees are struggling with in the context of their own assessment of Christ. Is that, hey, we don't want to deal with all of the chaos that surrounds Jesus' ministry. He's going to unturn or uphold or churn up our life in a real significant way. He's going to mess with things I don't want mess with. So rather than deal with what he actually says and who he actually is, let's just get rid of the guy. And Nicodemus stands up and begins to say, hey, before you do that, 
before any of us would be willing to dismiss Jesus out of pocket because of concerns that he's going to mess or fiddle with our lives, let's at least hear him out and understand what he's about. I think that's the challenge for many of us, specifically in the culture that we live, is that there's a lot of things that have been attached to who people think Christ is. And rather than search and seek out the trueness and the validity of what Jesus is, many dismiss Jesus before even giving him a hearing. Many are willing to just say, well, let's just not let him fiddle with my life and just move him out so I don't have to deal with the reality of the significance of what he's actually said. Tend to deal with labels and accusations or expectations. And yet Jesus speaks clearly about his love and passion for people. So you can see one movement forward. Nicodemus doesn't go along with the crowd and doesn't give in to peer pressure, but he begins to stand up and say, hey, let's just listen to see if Jesus is actually who he said he was. Man, what a great starting point, is it not? But, but then, what? Any more options for Nicodemus? Is this all we get as the story unfolds in Nick's life? Is it just limited to these pockets of being challenged and being like, okay, I'm going to listen and, and try and be noble and, and hear this guy out before I prejudge him? How do we know if Nicodemus' life was changed? John chapter 19 is the last pocket of Nicodemus' story. And it's intriguing for numerous reasons. But we got the crucifixion, which we celebrated on Good Friday. The significant reality of Jesus' death on the cross as he hung between two criminals, realizing that the innocent Lamb of God, which we sung about this morning, died on our behalf, paid the penalty that we deserve for our sin, that Jesus was up there not because of some Roman tyrannical expectation or because of some pharisaical plot to put him up there. Jesus was up there by choice for you and for me. He did it willingly. And in the process of his death, there are those that are surrounding, realizing the significance of the moment. They take him on the cross, take him off the cross, and prepare for him burial. Guess who's there? Guess who's there? Attending to the dead rabbi to the one that he had interactions with, that he had communicated with, that he had asked questions of, now dead. Verse 38 of chapter 19 says these things. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of mirth and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the garden where they, he was crucified, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. What a fascinating 
outcome to the reality of Nicodemus' story. Let me just give you a couple pockets that I don't want us to miss. Because this is how I can guarantee that God is about heart change. Not just information dissemination. Nicodemus, through the context of his story, was at the crucifixion. You get this sense that they're taking him off the cross and preparing him for burial. It tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was doing it in secret because he was afraid of the repercussions of actually caring for this dead, influential rabbi. Nicodemus does something very unique. It tells us that after they wrapped him, they, they put 75 pounds. It's, it's like a, a, the number is about 100, really, of, of in, in the Roman way that they did pounds of this Mirth and aloe oil. Where have we heard that before? Same oil. Same oils that was used by Mary when she anointed his feet and wiped it with her hair. One pound. And she was accused of being unwise and extravagant with something so expensive. A hundred times more than that, Nicodemus lay. On the dead, influential rabbi. Somebody who was a teacher, a Pharisee, a leader of the law, had been so thought and instructed in all of the things that were proper and appropriate. And yet what happens at the end of Jesus' life? He gives one of the most extravagant gifts that could be given for someone who had just given their life. This was... A hundred years worth of wages. A lifetime worth of effort. A lifetime worth of blood, sweat, and tears. Lavishly laid out on top of the dead, influential rabbi. Why? Because I think of this. When we are changed, what we value changes. It was nothing. For him to give his entire year, hundred years worth of stuff that he had accumulated and bury it with the dead influential rabbi. Not because there was an expectation that he would get anything in return. He was doing it out of sheer act of worship of laying down what he thought he valued before and on top of what he valued most. The reality of who Christ is. This is why God's about heart change. Because it's not about realizing that somehow in some way there's just some extemporaneous exercises of worship. Nicodemus gave it all because he knew that that dead influential rabbi would rise again. And what was once something that he valued so significantly had changed because he had valued something more. Christ himself is worth Everything. Because the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, Christ himself, has withheld nothing from you. Would you come? (laughs) Would you, even out of curiosity or brokenness or uncertainty or fear, be willing to just ask and see and allow Jesus to speak on his own behalf for who he really is? interesting part about this story and why I love being able to follow its trajectory so much is that it's as though the story continues to be written. We don't get any more about Nicodemus' life. 
We don't get any more about what happened with his ragtag bunch or his, his group of Pharisees. We don't know if he lost relationships. We, we don't know any of those things. But we know that throughout the whole process, God was writing it. You saw the story of Scott this morning. The story of God changing and transforming his life, bringing him to a place of faith in him, confessing that Jesus has rescued his life from addiction to drugs and alcohol. You would think, what a great testimony. Things are simple from that point forward. Not so. Look with me, if you will, as Scott shares the rest of the story. I did my three months there, went and did my classes. I went and had to do my drug testing. I was going to church. I was going to my meetings. And uh, I was learning. And I'm still learning. I, I, I struggle at times of understanding what's going on. But I know there's people here that I can go to to change or to help me to understand. I ended up two years sober and uh, two and a half years sober. I ended up remarrying my wife. I had still loved her through all this. I had made amends with my family and my kids. Today we have such a great relationship. My six grandkids and that. But it hasn't been easy. I mean, not the part of using drugs, but my life has not been because I have accepted Jesus into my life that uh, everything was going to be all rosy from then on. I, uh, I go through a lot of times where I feel guilty for the things I did. When I was, after we got, I got back with the family, I tried to do everything I could. I didn't care if it took all my money. Just, I would try to make sure that I make up for everything that I cost this family. I worked, paid the bills. I just, if, if somebody needed something, I would give it to them. Uh, and then I, I started driving truck. And one day during this, 2016, July 9th. I believe God got my attention. I wasn't feeling good that day. And I suffered five cardiac deaths, what they call five fatal arrhythmias. They said I was a miracle that I survived it. I know how I survived it. God wasn't done with me yet. And I was basically the brakes were thrown on. And after this, I felt like a total failure to my family, to myself. And I questioned why God let me live to, to go through this, to feel this. Uh, I questioned if I would have been just better off dead. I went through that depression, them ups and downs, for about five, six months. And one day I got up and I said to myself, I said, I can't do this no more. 
and I knew where I could go. I needed to go talk to somebody. And uh, so I said, I got dressed, got my car, and I drove over to Park Springs. And I uh, ended up meeting Charlie. And uh, I just met Charlie, and I believe I broke down. Just broke down. I just couldn't understand anything. Uh, Charlie has been a blessing in my life. He's my friend. He's my really good friend, and I love him. So we started working through some things. I still have rough days. You know, I've been in and out of the hospital since then. But I can get through them today because I know God's going to see me through it. And that it maybe it's, it's things I need to learn. Maybe I don't want to learn them. My struggles with money after my cardiac deaths to survive with the family, to have a roof over our head. We got a lot of help for that. And I believe that was God working. Because I never really had a whole lot of faith in other people. And so, I uh, attend church as much as I can. There's fishing season now, so <laughs> I love everybody here. I mean, I have been so blessed with the people that I've met here, the groups I attend. Uh, I know there's only 100%, but my life's a 1,000% better than it was. You know, and I don't believe there's anything I cannot get through as long as I keep my faith in Jesus. Again, my name is Scott Roper, and Jesus has rescued me. If you are having the same issues that I have had, let Jesus rescue you too.